Today's reading is uh, John chapter 4, uh, starting at verse 43, and because this is a sequential study through the book of John, this picks up where we left off last week, uh, where we left the Lord spending two days, the Lord Jesus spending two days with the people of Sychar in uh, Samaritan territory. And we're going to pick up and take our reading from verse 43 in John 4, and then draw out what is important to see and lessons to learn for us today. So let's take our reading, John chapter 4 and verse 43. After the two days, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honour in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. There was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, Come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realised that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralysed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath, and so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. We've already said that John, in his compiling of his gospel account, the good news account of the Lord Jesus Christ, did so by drawing in a number of signs that signposted to the greater reality that Jesus is the Saviour. And he was writing it late at the end of the first century to encourage second or third generation believers, but also for this to be used 
as a means of convincing people that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And he's been showing us so far the challenges and the difficulties that people have with regards to believing. Believing who Jesus is and what Jesus says about himself and the struggle that is present in everybody. And that continues on. We see the struggle here in the people that are referred to in this section. The struggle they have to really believe who Jesus is and what his purpose is all about. Taking a sequential study like this, we've probably also been able to see contrast. Do you remember last week there was the, the contrast between religious Nicodemus, we spotted in John chapter 3, and the irreligious Samaritan woman, and how Jesus is the saviour of the world. He comes to both people with the same message, because he is the only saviour of all people, regardless of background. And we saw the contrast, and John has done that under the control of the Spirit for a purpose, to show us contrast. But here we have another contrast. Last week, we finished in verse 42. If your Bible is still open, look at that. It says, They, that's the townspeople of Sychar, said to the woman, the woman that Jesus had conversation with at the well, he says, We no longer believe just because of what you have said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. That's where that section finishes. A town coming to realise through two days spent with Jesus and hearing what he said to them, that he is the saviour of the world. And then John takes us into another contrast. People in his home territory, Jesus' home area of Galilee, who are not prepared to listen to the things that Jesus says, but are more interested in the things that he does that are entertaining and fascinating. Because of his words, verse 41 tells us, if you even go back further up, because of his words, many more became believers. They came to know in Sychar that Jesus was the saviour of the world, and that statement means that he was the saviour of all people, because here was this Jewish man who has come to spend time with them, and the woman had said, is this the Messiah? And they have come in their conversation with Jesus and all that he has told them about himself to say, yes, this one is the Messiah, the great deliverer. And he is not only the saviour of the Jews, but he is the saviour of the world. And that's through the things that Jesus said to them. We don't read that Jesus did any miracles. There were no miracles in Sychar from what we're told. They believed that he was the saviour of all people. Paul, when he's writing his letter to the church of God in Rome, and he's explaining the greatness of God's salvation, he says that faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. Here were people in a town who had heard from the word of God himself, the word about himself, and they were convinced, here is the Messiah, deliverer, the saviour of the world. They heard it, and they believed. That was saving faith. Why? Because they said, we believe he is the saviour. They said it themselves. He is the saviour. After the two days that he spent with the people of Sychar, Jesus heads back to Galilee. Notice verse 44. The NIV says, now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honour in his own country. 
The Greek actually says, for Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honour in his own country. So John says, after two days, Jesus left for Galilee, for he had said, because he had said that the people of his own area would not honour him. Do you see the intentionality of Jesus to go into a situation where he knows he is not going to be honoured in the same way he had been honoured in Sychar? And he's going there for a purpose and John takes us with him to show us and to show us really obviously that there is a way to receive Jesus that is not receiving him at all. So he says that the prophet has no honour in their own country. That's what Jesus had said and John records that for us. There was this over-familiarity with Jesus. We read about it in John and also in the other gospel accounts how the people said, is this not the carpenter's son and the brother's not here and his mother? Why is he any different and why is he getting all the praise? There was this lack of respect because of over-familiarity. They'd grown up with Jesus. John, if you remember, started this whole gospel in John chapter 1. And in verse 11, it says that he, that's Jesus, the word, actually, the word of God. It says he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Here is John bringing that back into our minds again. Jesus going to his home area of Galilee up in the north of Palestine. And he goes there because he has no honour there. And then we get into this exchange that happens. But verse 45, notice it says, When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. So you're like, John, you're, you're playing with our minds here. You've, you said that Jesus said he has no honour, so therefore he's not welcome in a sense. But then the Galileans welcome him. John helps us with that in his next sentence. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. So being good Jews, they'd gone up to Jerusalem for the Passover. And it tells us that Jesus, while he was there, had performed signs. Remember that a sign points to something greater than what it is. So he had done things there to point to the greater reality of who he is. The Son of God, the Messiah. And it was for that reason that the Galileans welcomed him. Oh, we saw what he did up there. We're looking forward to seeing what we do now. So... John is helping us to see that there's a, there's a receiving here. There is a receiving on a level that is not a receiving of faith and saying this one is the saviour. It's one that this one is actually is a bit of an entertainer. How are we saved? We're saved on the basis of John 1, 11 and so many other verses by not only believing in who Jesus is, but actually receiving him. And receiving him in a way that means that we receive what he has done is for us and for others, and actually is the outflow of his very being as Saviour, as God. To as many as received him, John goes on to say in chapter 1, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, to those who received him. What about an illustration? Take a photograph. I could show you a member of my family on a photograph, knowing that you've never personally met them. I could tell you all about them. And you could get to know that person from the photograph, in a sense. 
But you know that the best way to know that person would be to receive them face to face. In fact, invite them into your house and spend some time with them. Then you get to know them. That doesn't go far enough, but that's as best as I can, I can try and come up with here. That's what John is getting at. There's this knowledge about Jesus and fascination with who he is and what he's able to do that sits in contrast to actually receiving him for who he is with regards to my life. Receiving him as saviour. Then people say, well, Jesus lived 2,000 years ago, so you're saying to receive him? How does that happen today? This is a reality that I, as Christians, if I'm speaking to Christians here, but maybe not to those who might be listening to the recording. For Christians, we need to be reminded that when we receive Jesus, it's a work of God by his spirit to awaken us to the reality that God, yes, he is everywhere, but he has this desire to be in us. Jesus himself said that. John chapter 14 and verse 16. Jesus said that the spirit, he lives with you, he said to his disciples, and will be in you. And he'll be in you forever. So here's the eternal God who is saying that it is possible to receive a man who has lived 2,000 years ago, who we believe has lived and died for sinners and has been raised to life again and has gone to take his rightful place in heaven again, we still receive him by the work of God through the eternal spirit of God who longs to be personally with us and in us. And that takes faith. Romans 8 verse 9, Paul says, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, and he went on to speak about the joy of the reality of knowing Christ in us, individually. So the reality is we receive the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, through faith, realizing that he is still alive and that the Spirit of God is able to come and to be with us. And Paul goes on in another letter to encourage the church of God in Ephesus. And he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So it's through faith. Believing, really believing in who Jesus is and what he has achieved. And what God is able to do that we think is mysterious but yet is real. That we come to know who Christ is. And it changes us because we receive him to be our own saviour. Colossians 1.27 Christ in you the hope of glory i'm laboring the point because we have here a situation where people welcome jesus for the fascination of what he could do but they were not receiving him as the savior for who he really was the god who deserved all honor and praise then it's ratcheted up a level in what john takes us to Fifteen miles away in Capernaum, this royal official has a son who has a fever and he's about to die. So this man has made a 15-mile journey, two days of a walk, to come because he's heard that Jesus, this great miracle worker, is back in the area. So he comes and he begs. The language of begging is true. He incessantly badgers Jesus, asking for him to come and heal his son. And look at the Lord's response in verse 48. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. Here John is taking us into the same thing again. And he's saying, look, 
Jesus was he'd gone here on with intention to this area where he would not be honoured for who he really is. For people who would receive him just for the good things that they would see and the benefits that they might receive from him. And Jesus confronts it straight on and he says to the crowd that was around him, he wasn't just addressing the royal officials uh, that's, that's come here. He says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. You're more interested in seeing the exciting, but even when you see it, it's not resulting in faith that saves Jesus the entertainer. Remember where we started this whole series in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Jesus performed, John says, many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John has written that there would be a form of belief in each person that would result in life in Christ Jesus. And he says, these signs I've chosen are to point you to him. The greater reality, don't be consumed with how wonderful the sign is on its own. Let it point you off to the greater reality. We have a little bit of a joke in the family that Haley likes to jump out of the car and take photographs of signs if we've been somewhere. And it's, sorry to do this to you, darling, but it's, it's one way of uh, having memories. And this, uh, that's a nice sign, usually. And, uh, but you, you take a picture of the sign because it reminds you of the greater reality, the place you've been. That's what John is saying. And Jesus is saying to people, you people see signs and wonders, but you're not letting your minds go where the sign wants to point you. You're just not believing. But Jesus, in his knowledge and in his compassion and in his power, says, go, your son will live. And the man takes him at his word. It took a lot of faith that maybe there was doubt. As he sets off back, we don't know, we're having to guess a little bit here, but he sets off on his two-day journey back. And he's wondering. He says he took Jesus at his word, and he goes. Not knowing what he's going to find, but then uh, the attendants from his house come running, uh, meet him on the way and say, um, it doesn't say they were running, it says they meet him on the way, and they say, your son lives. Oh, when did that happen? Uh, yesterday at one o'clock. Uh, that was the time when Jesus, he said, go, your son will live. And it was because of that, as he goes back into his house with joy, that it says that he and his household believed. Here was one of Jesus's, if I can call it this, remote control miracles. He does them all the time. But here was one that's written down for us, where he didn't even need to be there. But because he has knowledge and compassion and power, he was able to speak. And change a situation in that household 15 miles away. And the result of it is that it says that he and his whole household believed. What did they believe? John leaves it hanging. Did they believe that Jesus was this great miracle worker and that was it? Or did they believe that Jesus was the saviour of the world? We don't know. But it's left like that, I believe, for us in the wholeness of John's writings and the wholeness of the testimony of scripture to come to the right conclusion for ourselves. Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. 
Don't be consumed with the sign. Be consumed by the one it points to. John then helpfully says, this was the second sign performed after uh, Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee. So he's making the point that Jesus did a lot. And I'm just picking ones that are to help us come to belief that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing, we have life in his name. I want to stop for a moment and address what comes through John's writings strongly. Is that there is a form of belief that does not save. There is a form of belief in God and about Jesus that is not saving faith. Here we see in this little example of Jesus coming into his home territory and the exchange he has with the, the royal official. We see Jesus exposing the reality that people are so often consumed with that which excites and titillates and is new and fresh. And I think today in our society, we're right in the middle of that. And I've succumbed to it as well. I was just talking to Maisie and Isla before and making the point they've always grown up with the internet whereas it really only got switched on when I was about 20. But it has such an effect on us because we have this constant stream of that which is new and fresh that is exciting, that looks fascinating, that shows us what people are capable of, that shows us what they're up to and the news is constantly with a new feed and sometimes you click onto the, the BBC News app just to pick one and you'll refresh it and it's just the same as it was an hour ago and there's a sense of disappointment. We have this inbuilt tendency to want something new and fresh. And as Christians we want that too. We need to check our minds and our hearts on this matter. Because we can be so consumed with this overload of that which is new, that which is novel, it's the same word isn't it? Um, that, that which is just tantalizing takes us off into something else that's new and fresh, that we can be distracted from seeing God at all. And that's what was happening for the people in Galilee. They were excited because this was a new thing they hadn't seen for centuries, people doing miracles. And they were captivated by it. This is really, really exciting stuff. But they were blind to God. That applies to people who don't yet know the Lord Jesus as Saviour, but also to us who do. We can be consumed by the distractions that are created by this world, and Satan, the adversary, is active in that, but the sin within us as well responds to it. You know, when I was typing my notes for this, on this very section, I felt the tug in my heart and my mind to go and have a look at Instagram. And I did. Why? Because there's something new and fresh about it. And it's easy. Whereas spending time with God's things is hard at times. I'm sitting there as a hypocrite <laughs> at my desk. And it just shows how the flesh, how the heart, has a tendency to go after that which distracts. And would take us away from what God wants for us. I was then reminded in the moment. Malachi 3 verse 6. The Lord says, I the Lord do not change. Oh, well, that's a bit dull. Hebrews 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. 
as people who like new stuff, this really confronts us hard, doesn't it? But what it tells us is the very thing we crave, which is solid stability that we can build our lives on, is to be found in God alone. Not all the shifting stuff and images that come past us all the time. Let's get on to the healing at the pool. Because we have a man there who's uh, been crippled for 38 years. And we see something else that John introduces us to. And I believe it's the reality that he exposes is that people can be on the receiving end of the blessing of God. And have absolutely no clue that it's God that's done that for them. We're used to, with miracles, with uh, people asking for miracles. There is the, the other one where the woman comes up behind uh, the Lord when she's in the crowd and he, uh, she grabs his garment. She didn't ask, but she, she reached out in faith. But here we have a, an incident where nobody asks, but God, through his son, intervenes. And John chooses it to make a point to us today. So Jesus it says sometime later was back in Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals and there's this pool of Bethesda, house of mercy is what that means. Um, it's by the sheep gate and it's, uh, it's a covered area. It tells us all this detail. The Bible is good for, for this. It shows you it's reliable. And people with, um, it says, who were blind, lame and paralyzed seemed to get taken there and left there because there was this troubling of the water and I'm going to deal with verse 4 some of your Bibles have verse 4 some of your Bibles don't some of your Bibles will have verse 4 written down in the marginal notes the reason it's not there in the most recent translations is because it appears in the late manuscripts of the New Testament after 400 AD and the variances in the manuscripts are so wide that uh, they say it's, it's probably unreliable. It speaks of an angel coming down and troubling the waters. You notice the man says this. When the Lord says to him, do you want to get well? The man says, well, sir, I have nobody to help me get into the pool when the water's been stirred. It might have just been a natural movement of the water that happened on a relatively frequent basis. And the first person in after that, the superstition had arisen that here was somebody getting healed. Please don't let verse 4 become the obsession with this passage. I've heard people discuss and debate it and they lose the importance of this whole section. What is important here is that here was a man who for 38 years had been paralysed and his, his muscles had atrophied. Couldn't do anything for himself. And it tells us that, that Jesus takes the initiative again. Just like he'd gone into Galilee to expose people's excitement with the new and the exciting um, and their lack of belief. Here, Jesus takes the initiative as he's looking at all these people. It says he spots the man and he learned that he had been in this condition. That does not mean that Jesus asked somebody. The word behind it in the Greek means that Jesus had this knowledge. Something that was his because of him being the son of God. And he knew this man's condition. And just like it was with the royal official's son. Um, Jesus has the knowledge. 
And he has compassion and he has power. And he says to the man, do you want to get well? Uh, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. When I'm trying to get in, somebody else gets in in front of me. And they come out and supposedly they're healed. I'm just putting those words in. That's how the superstition... Imagine being like that. It doesn't tell us he'd been laying there every day for 38 years. But imagine going through that day after day after day. Incapable of getting up and getting in because there was nobody to help. Is it not a little image of what it means to be a sinner? Weakened by sin, unable to get ourselves up. And nobody to help us because we're all in the same situation. That's what the Bible would say to us about our condition as sinners. But what this shows us is that God does intervene in his grace in everybody's lives every day. And here was an instance of some special grace that came to this man. Because Jesus, he says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. In Romans chapter 1, verse 21, Paul, when he's describing sinful humanity, one of the, the key statements is there, people who deep down know that God exists, but fail to acknowledge or give thanks to him people can experience and know the grace of God and the power of God in their lives every day but yet don't give God a second thought and they think it's from another source even from themselves but here's a little cameo in this this um, gospel that John is putting together to show us that when God speaks with intention into somebody's experience, it's life transforming. Lazarus, I know we're jumping ahead to chapter 11, but Lazarus was dead. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. It was in the word that Jesus spoke that there was the same power to facilitate Lazarus getting up and coming out of the tomb. It's the same thing here. And John is telling us this man, when he hears, get up, pick up your mat and walk. The power of Jesus issued because of his compassion out of his knowledge of the predicament of the man. He speaks and the power is within his word to give the man the strength in atrophied legs to get up and to pick up his mat and go off. Now there's something else about the gospel. Yes, we're all sinners. Far from God. Deserving of his wrath because we have loved other things other than him. And all of us are in the same boat. And we're looking for ways of escape from the things of this life and we just don't know how to get out of it. But when God comes, as he has in the person of Jesus, the expression of himself, the word, and he speaks into somebody's life, there is the power there that stimulates a faith that looks to the cross and sees Jesus as the saviour of the world. Who is the one God himself as a perfect man who takes the sin of the world and suffering on behalf of those who will have faith in him. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter ends that chapter by saying that we're born again by the living and enduring word of God. Now, I'm stopping on this again because do you see what happened at Syker? People on hearing the word of God spoken by the word of God said this man is the saviour of the world. 
people seeing signs and just being caught up with that. John is saying there wasn't the response. But here, you get somebody who wasn't even looking for it, didn't even know who Jesus was. And Jesus speaks, the word of God speaks the word of God. And there is a transformation, the power that is there in the word of God. It's the same with salvation. When God would speak to us through his word, it transforms us, gives us the power to get up and to go. And that's what Jesus wants for us. In his knowledge and in his compassion and his power, he does that for us. Then we have this little uh, section which John is using to rise to the, the next section of chapter 5. And I think you're on next week, David, and taking us into the John chapter 5 later on has this remarkable exchange, conversation that Jesus has with the Jewish leaders. Where he speaks so much about who he is. And this is the prelude to it. The day on which the healing took place was the Sabbath. So the man's carrying his mat. And Jesus has slipped off into the crowd. So the man didn't even have time to find out who he was or even to say thank you, it seems. And he's, he's toddling off through the, the city with his mat. And up come the Jewish leadership and say, it's the Sabbath. You can't, the law says you can't carry your mat. Actually, the law says nothing of the sort. The law says you're not to work. But the, the Mishnah, which was the commentary that the Jewish leadership had put in place over centuries, um, tried to articulate what that was. And they had 39 um, descriptions of work that were prohibited on the Sabbath, one of which was including taking one thing from one area and putting it to another. Uh, that's taking the law and making it just something that crushes you. So here's this man carrying his mat. And I'm perplexed about this man. And I, I wonder if John has put it in this way so that we go away perplexed as well. It says they come up to him, the Jewish leadership, and say, you're carrying your mat on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow it. Well, actually, this, this man told me to pick up my, walk, uh, my mat and walk, so that's why I'm doing it. And that was it. So he deflects the blame from himself. Oof, I don't want to get out of favour with the, the Jewish authorities here. That's my take And he points away. But notice what happens, verse 14. It says, Later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, Here's the intentionality of Jesus again. Yes, in his knowledge and compassion and power, he has brought about a miracle. And the man doesn't even know how that's possible and who this man was. Jesus comes back intentionally to deal with something that's even more important is vitally important. It's the man's spiritual health. He says, see, you're well again. Verse 14. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now, this is not saying that the sickness that the man had was as a consequence of personal sin. It could be. We see that in scripture, but we also see that suffering and sickness is not always the consequence of personal sin. It can be because we live in a fallen, sinful world. It can be because of the sin others would commit against us. It can be, as Christians, because God will permit circumstances to come against us as a form of discipline that we might mature as his children. That's all there in Scripture. But here Jesus is saying that you need to stop sinning. Something worse may happen. 
I think the Lord is getting at the point that there's something more important than you being able to walk around. And that is, are you able to stand when final judgment comes before a holy and a righteous God? So Jesus comes back with intentionality because he knows and he has compassion and he has the power. He comes in the hope that that man will come to believe and stop sinning out of a life that is transformed. We're told elsewhere in John's writings that we're slaves to sin, Jesus said it. We can't help but sin. But what we're then told is that when God comes and saves us for himself, we then have the capacity to choose not to sin. Jesus is saying that to this man. You can have that. Verse 15 is where my perplexity lies. It says, the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who made him well. Was that him going off and telling tales? Was here a man who had been shown a sign that pointed to Jesus and Jesus comes back to make it clear and plain and speak to him about the reality of his sin and its consequences, does he still continue on? Having received all of the gracious benefits of the power of God and his experience, does he then worry more about what society around him thinks and particularly those who seem to have the highest place and authority? I'm just putting it there as a caution for us too. Is it possible that we would see the signs, have articulated to us the seriousness of sin and its consequences, but yet out of fear for what people might think of us, not believe it? Is that where this man finishes up? I don't know, John leaves it sort of hanging there for us to think that one over. And I think with the flow of the text, uh, from the beginning of chapter 4, with the, the whole story of Syker and, and so on all the way through, I think John has been bringing us to a point where we really need to think about what true saving belief really is. See, you are well again, stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. There's an invitation from God himself. For life that is transformed by his saving power. Let's pray.